This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And as you can hear from my voice, I have a cold, and this, this often happens. I'm in Washington, D.C., in my lovely hotel, the Riggsbank Hotel, in the beautiful old Ford's Theater District of Washington, uh, the Red Brick District, with many of the houses being constructed in the 1850s. And uh, it's, I love it. It's my favorite part of D.C., and John and I always stay here when we come and have our meetings, and we're through now almost our 15th meeting of the week. That's tonight. Uh, it's been great seeing so many people and pushing hard for the book, um, talking to our public relations team and getting ready to let loose the book on the rest of the world, and uh, very exciting times for us. Had a lot of great meetings, getting all our realist tribe together um, as we struggle to retain power in the future and change the nature of American foreign policy. So exciting days, been really good to see everyone, been great to hang out with John, face-to-face as it always is, but not unsurprisingly, I've come down with a cold, which tends to happen. But I wanted to get this out to our community because we are leaving DC tomorrow. John goes back down to Charleston and I begin the long journey back to Milan. Two weeks later, I'll be in Washington, or I'll, sorry, I'll be in London, where I get to read the book, and this is very exciting. I am reading the audio book uh, for The Last Best Hope, and so I'll be in London at the studio to do that and record the book, the audio book, and then I'm going to take Sarah to the Globe Theater and see Macbeth, see Shakespeare there, and have a weekend to celebrate with her for all the support she's given me. But before we get to all that, I wanted to continue with our series on what was I thinking as I wrote the book? How does a writer go about thinking what to construct, what to create? And I thought this would be interesting, and it's really taken off, thanks to so many of you who've written in and enjoyed this. It's been great fun to do. Next week, we will finish with Raymond Chandler and why he's important with the great novel, I think probably his best, The Long Goodbye. Um, that's been a very popular series. I'm glad so many of you have enjoyed that. Well, Probably move on to Hemingway next, Daryl, for you. Uh, I think that'll probably be where we head next. But do remember that starting next week for the culture section, uh, we need you to subscribe. So many of you have, but we're to the point now where we need to up uh, the Substack, And so we will continue to do Around the World in 20 Minutes for everybody. But the culture section, you're going to have to subscribe. All we're asking again is $70. Uh, a year, which is the price of one of the cappuccinos I'm longing to have back in Milan. Uh, if you do, if you add in the price of that for every time we do one of these, you easily cover this. And if you think we're providing you with something unique and valuable with the culture around the world in 20 minutes and our election coverage, which is just starting, I've done nothing but talk politics all week and I have a much better understanding of what's going on. Uh, then do please give. Uh, otherwise, we'll have to exclude you from the culture, and we don't want to do that. Right. On to Chapter 4. Senator William Bora reminds us that sovereignty is real and everything. One of the real problems uh, with the academy is that it skews so far to the left. Everybody knows this, and everybody says this. But what does that mean in practice? I'll give you an example. I joke in the book that most historians are to the left of Trotsky, which is probably an exaggeration, but certainly the historical field skews to the left. For example, the narrative of World War I in the United States, the narrative of the tragedy, as it's known, of 
Woodrow Wilson would go something like this and see if this tracks with your high school AP history class. It does with mine. That there's this beautiful creation of Wilsonianism, this idea of rule by experts, rule by an elite that advocates international law and international organizations rather than the United States itself to run its own affairs. And that this really came onto the scene with Woodrow Wilson and the 18 or the 14 points, which he promulgated in January 1918. And this was, and certainly was, a revolutionary moment for foreign policy thinking, but I think a terrible one. That's not how it's read in most people's history books. Instead, they're said that the visionary prophet like Wilson is held back from realizing his dream of global government, his League of Nations, which is going to keep the peace for all time after the charnel house of World War I, and that this is going to, going to take the place of brutish, um, nationalistic, autonomous, sovereign states, and that we're going to govern for the global good, and that this was stopped tragically because of Wilson's short-sighted, knuckle-dragging opponents who refused to give up their sovereignty and play ball with this revolutionary new theory. And because they didn't play ball, World War II was the result. That kind of fairy tale is what passes for a lot of academic assessment for the simple reason that most people assessing Wilsonianism in your high school AP history class are Wilsonians. And so they look at the creed they believe in, unsurprisingly, in a very favorable light. Let me give you the realist critique of this ridiculous fairy tale, as we tell in this chapter the story of Senator William Bora. That sovereignty is real in everything. That Bora, who led what were known as the irreconcilable faction, the 16 senators who under no circumstances were going to allow the League of Nations to pass muster, and did so to preserve the American foreign policy experience of the prior 150 years, going back to the farewell address of George Washington, which we talked about in Chapter 1. Bora refuses to play ball and makes a principled case for why sovereignty is real and everything. And in doing so, Bora saves the country from giving up its defenses, from giving up its agency. And isn't it wonderful that Bora did? Because the United States, without the ability to act on its own, without the ability to look at its own sovereign needs and interests, would not have been able to save the world from the dark night of Hitler under Franklin Roosevelt, uh, which we're going to look at next week in Chapter 5. That in America that had shackled itself, where it, where it was an American Gulliver tied down by a bunch of international unelected technocrats, the Lilliputians who tie the American Gulliver down, that we're not going to allow this to happen, and that it was vital that Bora, despite tremendous odds, because Wilson uh, was seen almost as a messianic figure in 1918, was wildly popular throughout the world, and Bora's unlikely besting of Wilson preserved American freedom of action in the 20 years ahead when it will be absolutely vitally needed to save the world from Nazism. So rather than causing World War II uh, by not signing on to the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles, Bora helped save the world in World War II by reminding the rest of us that sovereignty is real and everything. That would be the realist critique, which you never hear because the people making the history are left-wing Wilsonians, except for me. 
And so that's why I really like this chapter, that it began to me with, let's tell things as they really were, or at least put forward a realist critique of this fairy tale, this simplistic Wilsonian fairy tale, we're all forced to learn in high school to get a good AP grade. And really, it comes down to, in a way, how you think people, you know, basically humans act. And one of the points is that the people who believe in this Wilsonian nonsense act like a bird on top of a rhino. It's about the causation. The bird may think it's driving the rhino, but all of us know the great beast. The great beast is giving the bird a lift. And the rhino in the story is sovereignty, is national interest, is nationalism. This is how people view themselves in the real world as opposed to academia. Uh, they view themselves as an American or British or French or German or Chinese or Russian or whatever they are. And this is what motivates them to make sacrifices in terms of blood and treasure. And this is how they go about seeing the world. That Still, the motive force of how people view life and why they behave and what motivates them remains nationalism as it has been since at least the end of the Thirty Years' War, the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, and that this attempt to upend human nature is, as utopian schools of thought like to do, is inevitably bound to fail because you can't remake humans because you don't happen to like them. Instead, Wilsonians are that silly bird on top of the rhino acting like they're steering the world when in reality, nationalism, sovereignty, agency, and love of your country are still what make the world go round. And this is really the basic fundamental difference. So who was William Bora? Well, he was born in rural Illinois, uh, June 29th, uh, 1865. He's the seventh of 10 children in a large farming family. He wasn't very good at school, uh, Bora, but he was a born orator from the beginning. People would stop and listen to him talk. Um, he ran away from home uh, and joined a uh, itinerant Shakespearean company of actors. His father had to go and get him. So he wanted to be on the stage, so to speak, since his life began, and he, he would occupy a giant stage in the American Senate. Uh, he became a lawyer, getting his degree at the University of Kansas. And like most men of his generation, or many, he headed west to make his fortune. Uh, while he was on board the Union Pacific Railroad, on the advice of a gambler, he settled in Boise, Idaho, which was still a boomtown, um, a western boomtown. And very quickly, Bora did very well in this new boomtown where if you were, it was very meritocratic and aspirational. And he became a lawyer who had a moderate position about the labor tensions then roiling the American scene. Uh, he had a moderate view that union, unionization should be allowed to occur, but at the same time, it was very, very important. Uh, that there not be violence. And this allowed him to have clients who were both unions and businesses. And so his law practice flourished. He married Mary McDonnell, the governor's daughter, and they remained married for 45 years. Uh, from the beginning, Abora is hard to categorize in place because he's fiercely independent, even when it gets him into trouble. Uh, he, he was initially a Republican, but what he really was was a Western populist progressive. And in 1896, when the populist movement swept the country, he left the Republican Party, joined the populist crusade of William Jennings Bryan, before, after that had failed, rejoining the Republican Party. When the Republicans' own charismatic populist, Theodore Roosevelt, came on the scene, he became a close ally and aide of TR. And in fact, there's a great scandal of the era that William Bora became very close 
to TR's oldest daughter, the beautiful Alice Roosevelt. Um, caustic, downright rude, very, very funny, very, very bright. Teddy Roosevelt famously said, I can control Alice or I can run the country. I cannot do both. And so his wild, beautiful, headstrong uh, daughter was to have a long-term affair with Bora, and they actually had a child who was born of this union. So he was extraordinarily close to the Roosevelt family. Uh, he became a senator in 1907, remaining so for the next 33 years until his death in 1940. And he was even in D.C. He was a fascinating character. He walked around D.C., a very eastern town, as John and I have seen today, wearing a Western-style 10-gallon hat, which he never stopped taking off. So this is a real archetype, a Western, progressive, charismatic, orator, populist, and on the old progressive wing of the Republican Party. Um, he got a seat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1913, and he occupied that seat for the next 25 years, becoming a leading figure in the country on the study of international relations. He understood uh, fundamentally from the beginning, and this is because of his own nationalism, that nationalism was the dominant universal force in the world. For instance, he disagreed with President Woodrow Wilson, who comes to power in 1912. He disagrees with him about the America meddling in the Mexican Revolution. And he says that the one thing that can unite the Mexicans is if the United States were to cross the border due to Pancho Villa's raids and invade Mexico, that suddenly... Other people have nationalism, too, not just the United States, and this would unify the Mexicans. Whereas Wilson thought that nationalism was basically an impediment, an anachronism that could rather easily be overcome, Boris saw it for what it was as a primary driving force of human behavior. Very different view. And, of course, this reached its, its kind of climax over World War I and the 14 points, which, again, were promulgated by Wilson. January 8th, 1918, and, the, and they assumed a quasi-religious status because Wilson was certainly Bora's matches in order. They're the two great speakers of their time. The 14 points call for a new international organization, the League of Nations, to do the job that states had done up to this point of keeping the global peace. And the 14 points look at the causes of World War I and say there should be no secret treaties, there should be regulation of armaments by some international institution. The League should govern war and peace issues, not states. And the uh, cynical premier of France, Georges Clemenceau, had a very funny quote about the 14 points. He said, God himself has only 10 commandments, but President Wilson has 14. Uh, and it does point out, again, Clemenceau, classic nationalist realist, that what Wilson was trying to do was codify human behavior like a lawyer rather than as to how people actually behave. And this would be the problem with Wilson's approach all the way through. Um, Bora was one of the few who opposed the treaty, and there, and there were different groups. Uh, there were three basic groups vying over the treaty. Once it's signed over in Paris, the Treaty of Versailles, Wilson has to get it through two-thirds of the Senate for it to become valid for the United States. No treaty up to this point had ever been rejected by the United States Senate. As we saw, the Jay Treaty barely makes it through with Washington and Hamilton without a vote to spare, 20 to 10, but never had a treaty been rejected. And Wilson, at the time, was in 1918, was easily the most popular man of the world, so people assumed this would be easy. But three groups formed. There was a group of Wilson supporters, the Wilsonians, who favored signing the treaty, 
and then two groups that didn't, the irreconcilables, who were Bora's group, who were a minority of about 16 senators, and under no conditions are Bora's people going to sign the treaty. And then there were a group of reservationists, led by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, there's a great quote, you know, he was a Boston Brahmin. Uh, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The quote is, welcome to Boston, the, the land of the bean and the cod, where the Cabots speak only to the Lodges and the Lodges speak only to God. And this little rhyme, this little limerick, I mean, he was not just a Cabot or a Lodge, but a Cabot Lodge. So very rarefied, as close to an American aristocrat as you could get. And whereas Bora actually privately liked Woodrow Wilson and admired his progressive politics domestically, uh, Cabot Lodge, who was also friends with Theodore Roosevelt, wrote to Teddy and said he'd never hated anyone in his life as much as Wilson. But Cabot Lodge was open to reservations to the treaty, that he wasn't just going to say no, but if they made amendments to the treaty, he might indeed sign the thing. And so these three groups are the three chess pieces on the board over the ratification of the Treaty of Versailles and the Wilsonian kind of dream. I mean, this is the kind of point. But not, not so for Bora. He sees this as a fundamental threat to the founders, to American sovereignty, and to the need to avoid entangling alliances. Because if you sign on to this, um, what the League of Nations for Bora is a trap. Because inevitably, it will involve the United States in all future conflicts in Europe and might even help to support European empires trying to defend their empires from nationalist, colonial nationalism, which is rising at the time. That if you sign on to this, 125 years of America staying out of European affairs goes out the window and you endanger the United States, which has become wildly prosperous because of Hamilton's revolution, because of John Quincy Adams' revolution with the Monroe Doctrine, and you're putting all that at risk because now it isn't America that's guarding North America and the Western Hemisphere. Instead, it's a League of Nations. A bunch of unelected technocrats are going to be able to force the United States to do what it wants to. And he's just not for squandering 125 years of U.S. foreign policy for this very dubious view about how human nature actually works. For a special target in the League of Nations was Article 10. Article 10 of the League of Nations obliges all members to come to the defense of another member in event of attack if the League's council call for it. So this is doing away with Congress's power to declare war. The American people no longer are going to decide issues of war and peace through elected members of Congress. Rather, a League council of foreign countries, of whom the United States is but one, are going to decide when there will be war and peace and you pledge to defend any other country in the event that it's attacked if the League's Council called for action. It's a total revolutionary bit of lunacy putting decision-making in the hands of unelected foreign technocrats. This destroys American freedom of action and subordinates the United States Constitution to the League Council. So it's for these first principled reasons, and that, in a strange way, the reservationists are the ones who are out of touch. The two people who really understand this are Bora and Woodrow Wilson, that it is a revolution that moves power from the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Congress to the League Council, international law, international organizations, and unelected foreign temp uh, technocrats who decide rather than the United States. It's a first principle argument. 
U.S. foreign policy then would be at the mercy of foreign powers uh, who might have very different national interests from the United States. It would be the end of U.S. sovereignty and the end of U.S. agency, the ability to act on its own without taking into account other countries' very different interests. Bora is not an isolationist. He had voted for World War I to see this and had been involved on the Foreign Relations Committee, had been involved in, in particularly Western Hemispheric Affairs, but he sees this as what it is, a fundamental revolution which subverts uh, things. For instance, he says, well, if we're going to meddle in Europe, then the Europeans can meddle in the Western Hemisphere. There goes the, the Monroe Doctrine. And the more he read, read this, the more Boris saw this for what it was, a first principle problem. Um, and so th this is it. When the president actually sends a message out as saying, uh, come and visit me in the White House, uh, to the Foreign Relations Committee, Boris says politely, well, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but there's absolutely no point in me coming because I believe what you're doing is utterly antithetical uh, to American interests, and you're not going to talk me round on this point. Um, the interesting thing, and we talk in the book, it's very complicated how the battle for the treaty politically um, wore out. Those of you who like House of Cards, uh, you're going to enjoy this because we have a House of Cards story over the Versailles Treaty, and we go through every single bit as to how things went. But beyond looking in the weeds about this uh, and looking at the complication over the fight for the League and the ratification of the Treaty of Versailles, at the next level up, the political outcomes are a simple kind of power structure. Bora and the Ir Ir Irreconcilables, the 16, stayed unalterably opposed to the treaty, but he makes a concession to unite with Henry Cabot Lodge and the reservationists, the moderates who don't like the treaty but aren't prepared to vote no if, if indeed compromises and changes to it can be made. And what happens here is that they say Cabot Lodge, who's the head of Bora's party in the Senate, he's the, he's the head of the Foreign Relations Committee, and in essence, though they didn't have one then, he's the majority leader, and he says to Bora, don't outright vote against it, let's just make a series of reservations as to what's wrong with the treaty and Wilson being the arrogant, incredibly preternaturally arrogant, unyielding, unbending, black and white person who thinks in essence, as Clemenceau was implying, that he's God, he's not going to, he's going to fall into our trap. He won't accept any changes to his work and in being stiff-necked, this will lead to the end of the treaty. And this makes sense to Bora. And so he, he makes a compromise in a way that Wilson never could. And so Cabot Lodge and Bora together draft language. Bora did the actual drafting over particularly Article 10, that this giving up of sovereignty, which for Bora and Cabot Lodge is real in everything, in giving up sovereignty, that this has to be rewritten. And the, and the American, con for instance, they say one of the reservations is, if there is some sort of war and peace decision, it has to be ratified, not by just by the League Council, but primarily and overwhelmingly by the U.S. Congress, that the power of Congress to declare war and peace and the American people to be sovereign can't be abridged. And of course, Wilson falls directly into the trap. He, he refuses to make any compromises. And so shockingly, he is outvoted in a series of uh, House of Cards moves that you'll see. Uh, the treaty comes up actually uh, two to three times, depending on how you count, uh, for ratification. But in the end, Bora and Cabot Lodge, through a lot of ups and downs and Game of Thrones type behavior, um, stick together 
and shockingly and blessedly defeat Wilsonianism and Woodrow Wilson, scourge of common sense, scourge of sovereignty being real and everything. And America, for the first time ever, does not sign uh, a treaty and ratify it. Rather, it rejects it. And Bora, uh, the, the key moment is in November 19th, 1919. Bora gives one of the great speeches in the history of the Senate, talking about passionately why he could never vote for this and why no one must. And it's a real highlight of the book, Bora leading the fight on the Senate floor. And again, this is the first time in American history when the Senate rejected a treaty sponsored by the White House. Of course, Bora's contrarianism didn't help him in a number of other ways, that in the 1920s, he tends to fight with even Republican presidents. Calvin Coolidge had an amusing comment. He sees Bora out in Rock Creek Park here in Washington uh, exercising his horse, and Coolidge says to a friend that it must bother the senator from Idaho to be going in the same direction as his horse. So often is Bora at odds with everyone around him. He turns down the vice presidency, which Coolidge offers him in 1924 because he doesn't want to be managed. And likewise, in 1928, Herbert Hoover offers him his dream job of secretary of state, but he turns that down because he just can't be broken. He's a wild Mustang of a human being, and he just can't be broken or put into harness for someone else's foreign policy uh, desires. When Cabot Lodge dies in 1924, Borat does become chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, for much of the next decade and a half. Uh, the Lion of Idaho, as he's known, died from a cerebral hemorrhage January 19th, 1940. But he's certainly someone that in the book we want to Tarantinoize uh, the John Travolta of our time and remember how good he was and how he's largely forgotten now because of this pernicious narrative written mainly by Wilsonians about their fallen prophet. Remember, there's a reason prophets tend to be stoned. Wilson wasn't very good with people, wasn't very good with human nature, and didn't like making compromises, which is the basis of democratic governance. And so for all these reasons, Bora saves the United States from giving up its powers, giving up its sovereignty, giving up its agency and ability to act on its own where it thinks its natural national interests are at stake. And thank God that Bora did this would be my counter narrative, because in doing so, America, in just 20 years later, under the genius of Franklin Roosevelt, the third great historical foreign policy revolution in American history is the Roosevelt Rule. I've written a piece by The Messenger about this, and we'll talk a lot about this next week in what I assume is be a rather long a podcast on Roosevelt so seminal as this. But Bora clears the way by not falling for this nonsense that the American Gulliver is not shackled. And so when Roosevelt has to save the world in the late 1930s and early 1940s, he is able to do so precisely because William Bora has reminded us that sovereignty is real and everything. Thanks so much. I enjoyed doing that. That went much better than I thought from the beautiful Riggs Hotel despite my cold. But again, please do subscribe now. Those of you who haven't, we're asking for only $70 a year. Please do that now. So next week, when we're talking on Tuesday, you can hear the last of the Raymond Chandler, the culture sections, our political updates as we head into a very political season. And in fact, I may next week talk a little bit about our trip, our 15 meetings. John and I have one more dinner to go to tonight before we collapse in heaps. And he goes down to Charleston and I go back to Milan. 
And we'll do that and also on to chapter five and the genius that is Franklin Roosevelt and his innovation. So please do give the $70. And last point, everybody be prepared to write a review of the book on the day that it's released in January. And we'll talk more about this before you get it. I know it sounds very odd for writing review, but if you could just write a couple lines, our inner audience, my shock troops here, that would be great. If you go on the American Amazon site and write three lines that I don't care, you can say, obviously, I'm a, I'm a libertarian free speech guy, say whatever you like, but you can say something without reading it. Look, I'm looking forward to getting the book or something like that. But if 50 people or so write this uh, for the Amazon site in January when the book formally comes out, we'll defeat the algorithm. And that's vital because then we will use the, the beast talking about lumbering rhinos that is Amazon and it will begin to advertise the book for us. So keep that in mind as we game this thing out. Listen, guys, have a great weekend. Wish me luck with my cold and my trip back. And lovely, lovely as the Riggs Bank Hotel is, one of my favorite hotels in the world. I can't wait to get back to Sarah in Milan. Have a great weekend, guys.